1: I'm Kristen Padilla, the producer of the Beeson podcast, filling in for Dr. George. And I am here with my friend, Dr. Robert Smith Jr. I have the privilege today of introducing a sermon that Dr. George preached here at Beeson Divinity School in Hodges Chapel in the fall semester of 2005. This was actually my first semester as a Beeson student, and I remember hearing this sermon, and this sermon has never left my heart. Dr. Smith, can you tell us about this sermon that we're going to hear today?
2: Yes, thank you, Kristen. It is a sermon that is given as a title perhaps. The larger text is Philemon, verses 10 to 22. Dean George read that, but the focus text is verse 15, which begins with the word, perhaps, that gives birth to his sermonic title. Like the minor prophets who have a major message, this is a sermon that has a very brief title, but has a vast message of providence and mystery for would-be ministers and those who are preparing for the pastorate. I think this is pastoral theology done from the pulpit at its best. It's timely for pastors in training and for ministers who are experienced. Uh, it's very scholarly. Of course, we expect it of Dean George. He quotes all kinds of individuals throughout church history. Uh, he deals with deism, that God is Uh, A God of uninvolvement, of course, uh, he renounces that, that God is very much involved in our lives. It's theocentric. He admits and acknowledges uh, the truth of William Cowper's song. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, and closes with that line. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. So God is the God of self-revelation. He deals with Paul's uh, involvement in the lives of Philemon and Onesimus. He deals with the history of slavery, not only uh, in Rome, ancient Rome, but in the Americas. And is very bold and profound in uh, critiquing those who would use, like Charles Calicott Jones, uh, this passage as a proof text for the admonition to slaves to not run away from their masters. He's polemical. He's catechetical in teaching their minds. He's apologetic in defending the equality between slaves and free persons based upon Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there is no um slave or any free person. We're all one. And he is balanced in terms of what he and who he selects to deal with the slavery issue, which is a part of the sermon, because it comes out of Philemon. Cain Hope Felton, New Testament black scholar. Frank Thielman of Beasts of the School, a white New Testament scholar. And David Garland uh, from Truett Theological Seminary, a New Testament scholar. I just thought that his biblical supporting text helped to buttress and reinforce uh the uh The statement that is being made to show that the Bible in itself is a word that brings justification for all people, regardless of status, etc He goes to job he goes to ezekiel thirty seven and of course Paul and his hope for return to the house of Philemon. He's a wordsmith Christian, a holy hunch. Holy hush of the mystery within Elijah's experience when he doesn't see God in the earthquake, the wind, or the fire, but the holy hush of the still small voice. Strange coincidences and serendipities. Listen to the dean talk to us. Quoting from Alexander McLaren, that a humble perhaps grows into a verily, verily, while a hastily overconfident verily, verily dwindles into a humble perhaps. I think that his voice provides for us the thunderbolt of boldness, but a soft and calming tone that comes from the same vocal cords. Here is a message that will speak to persons who are called to serve, to speak the word of God with a sense of perhapsness. I'm coining that word and to be cautious about what we say so that we understand that God providentially speaks and to be reluctant about speaking where God is silent.
1: Timothy George has been the dean of Beeson Divinity School since its inception in 1988. He's also the host of the Beeson podcast. Let's go now to Hodges Chapel, where we will hear him preach a sermon entitled Per Adventure.
0: You'll open your Bibles with me to the book of Philemon in the New Testament. Philemon, I'm going to begin reading with verse 10 and read down through verse 22. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me, so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer a slave, but better than a slave. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Out of this passage, the text I want us to focus on today is verse 15. The verse that begins with this word, perhaps, or as an earlier English translation renders it, peradventure, peradventure, the reason he was separated from you for a while was that you might have him back for good. This is the word of the Lord. Of all Paul's letters, Philemon is the shortest. 25 verses, 335 words, one slender page in the New Testament, one single sheet of papyrus as it came from the hands of Paul. How did this little book, Philemon, make it into the Bible? Why was it included in the canon of Scripture? There's nothing here about the great doctrines of justification and predestination as we read about in Romans. Nothing here on the dialectic of law and gospel as we find in Galatians. And though it is a personal letter about a private matter, we don't see here the kind of raw emotional display we encounter in 1st and especially 2nd Corinthians. Paul is now quite old. He's in prison, probably in Rome. And he writes this letter to Philemon, a Christian leader who lives at Colossae, a person Paul had led to Christ on one of his missionary journeys through that part of the world. Which is why he says in verse 19, You owe your very self to me. While in prison, Paul has met a certain Onesimus. He is a fugitive slave, fugitivus in Latin, a runaway slave. Who, like his master, Philemon, has now become a Christian through Paul's witness. Onesimus has become very close to Paul. He refers to him as my own heart, my very heart. And Paul would like to have kept Onesimus with him as a helper in prison. But he is sending him back to Philemon with this plea, that Onesimus be received no longer as a slave but as a brother in Christ. Paul asks that he be forgiven any wrongs he may have committed. And if he has incurred any debt, Paul says, charge it to me. Put that on my credit card. Now, there are many things that we can learn from this brief letter. One concerns the theme of slavery itself, Or Philemon is a book with a controverted history. Charles Colcott Jones was a white Protestant minister who preached among the slaves in Georgia prior to the Civil War, and one of his favorite sermons was on Philemon. He presented Philemon to the slaves as a proof text against slaves running away from their masters. And he was startled, he tells us in his diary, by the bitter reaction he received. One half of my audience deliberately rose up and walked off. Those who remained looked anything but satisfied, either with the preacher or his doctrine. Afterwards, there was no small stir among them. Some solemnly declared that there was no such epistle in the Bible. Others that they did not care if they ever heard me preach again. Well, that's a sentiment I have experienced myself from time to time, from those who've heard me. Those like Jones, who cited texts like Philemon to justify the institution of slavery, failed to see what Dr. Thielman calls in his wonderful new study of New Testament theology, the radical social implications of the gospel in this little book. Cain Hope Felder has edited a volume of essays on African-American biblical interpretation called Stony the Road We Trod. And in that book, there's one essay entitled Philemon Paul Onesimus Triangle. And it sees Paul's almost dizzying display of family language in this book. Receive him as a dear brother And he concludes that there is here on display a gospel, the same gospel that subverts the fundamental distinction between Jew and Gentile, will not long leave the issue of slavery alone. I think that's what Dr. Thielman means by the radical social implications of the gospel in this book. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Receive him as myself, as Tyndale translates it. Now, we know that Paul intended actually to go back to Colossae and to stay in the house of Philemon. He mentions that in verse 22. Prepare a guest room for me. I hope to get back to see you. Now, How would Paul be received? How would he be welcomed in the household of Philemon? In the first place, when he arrived, from the dust and weariness of the road, his feet would be washed. Then he would be given the finest accommodations, every courtesy, every amenity, as we ourselves show to our guests In your house, is there the same thing as I find in my own? In the bathroom, the guest bathroom, there are these nice little towels uh, and soap that looks strange and different. And sometimes when I come in and go in there to wash my hands, I will hear my wife saying, now that's not for you. That's for the guests. Save that for them. That's the best we have. We give that to our guests. Paul would have been embraced and cared for and invited to join the family at table for dinner. And Paul says to Philemon, As you would receive me, receive him. Here you see that evangelical subversion at work. There's something else I want us to see in this book. It's verse 15. Because here Paul steps back for a moment. And he places this whole event in the context of ultimate meaning. He asks the teleological question. Why has this happened? What is this for? Does this whole episode, Onesimus running away, is meeting Paul in Rome, is going back now to Philemon with a radically altered status, does this serve some final purpose? Does it fit into God's grand design, His providential pattern? And His answer is as perplexing as it is surprising. His answer in the first word of verse 15 is peradventure. Perhaps. Perhaps. The reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. Perhaps. There are two things I want us to see about this text and this message. The first one is this. It is always right for Christians to ask what God is doing in the events that shape our lives and mark our days. All of the events, tragedies and the joys, the strange coincidences and serendipities, the circumstances that come unexpectedly and inexplicably into our lives— These may be holy hunches. That's a Robert Smith word. (laughs) Holy hunches. I'll never forget when I met Dr. Smith for the first time. It was at the Birmingham airport. He had flown down to talk with us about becoming a member of our faculty. He was a well-esteemed, much-beloved professor in another seminary. There was no real objective reason necessarily why he should come here rather than stay there, but he had come to talk with us, to pray with us. I picked him up at the airport. We were driving to the restaurant, and he said along the way, I, I just have a holy hunch God might be in this. And when we got to the road that led to the restaurant, we both saw at the same moment Street sign. It was Robert Smith Drive. (laughs) So help me God. (laughs) Now you say Robert Smith, that's a pretty common name. It's not Alexander Bukharov or something like that. There it was, Robert Smith Drive, still there today. That's just a coincidence. Could happen anywhere. Perhaps. Peradventure. Or maybe it really was a holy hunch. Did you ever wonder how Enesimus found Paul in Rome? It's estimated there are 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was not unusual for a runaway slave to go to Rome. Slavery in the ancient world was not based on race as it came to be in the New World and the Americas. It was not easy to tell a slave from someone who was not a slave just by walking down the road, and Rome was a place where many people would come, many slaves would come, seeking the anonymity of the streets and the forum. How did Onesimus find Paul in Rome? The great New Testament scholar, Lightfoot, asked, was it an accidental encounter with his fellow townsman, Epaphras, in the streets of Rome, which led to his interview with Paul? Was it the pressure of want that induced him to seek alms from one whose large-hearted charity must have been a household word in his master's family? Or did the memory of solemn words which he had chanced to overhear at those weekly gatherings in the upper chamber at Colossae haunt him in his loneliness, till, yielding to the fascination, he was constrained to unburden himself to the one man who can soothe his terrors and satisfy his yearnings? Is this what caused him to seek out Paul, to find Paul? Was it just an accident I agree with my friend David Garland, who says something other than happenstance brought Onesimus to Paul. Now, there are those who say that God doesn't get very much involved in our lives. The deists said that in their day, and there are those who say that today. God made the world. He created it. Yes, there is a God, but he's kind of left it all alone, spinning on its axes in space. He doesn't have time or interest to get involved in the daily happenings, the little details, the small, puny circumstances of our limited, finite existence. He's a big God out there. And we're more or less kind of sort of on our own down here. Was it just an accident that led John Wesley his life in shambles, having come back from America, a failed missionary, not knowing where to turn, where to go, what to do. Went to St. Paul's Cathedral one Sunday afternoon and then wandering a little along the little lanes nearby. Happened, he says, very unwillingly he went. It happened that he passed by a prayer meeting where a Moravian preacher named Peter Burler was giving a an exposition on Luther's introduction to Paul's letter to Romans, which dealt with an Old Testament text from Habakkuk. That's fifth-hand salvation, isn't it? <laughs> John Wesley went into that little prayer meeting in Aldersgate, and he says his heart was strangely warmed. There was ignited in his soul that day a fire that has still not been put out. Peradventure adventure, perhaps. Yet there is a mystery here. The Greek word for perhaps is an unusual word. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, in Romans 5, 7, that's all. Paul uses it here in the letter to Philemon to underscore the importance of humility in all of our discourse about God. Be on alert for the holy hunch, but do not forget the holy hush. Sometimes through wind, earthquake, and fire, yes, but also in the holy hush. Of the still small voice he speaks. And this is a lesson every pastor needs to learn. I'll never forget Dr. Gardner Taylor telling the story of a young minister fresh from the seminary who had come on to the church staff to assist Dr. Taylor in pastoral care of the congregation and one of the elderly deacons in the church had just lost his wife. The young pastor, eager to serve and minister, was there before Dr. Taylor could arrive. He rushed in and began to talk about, this is all God's will and everything is going to be fine and you need to look up to the Lord, dear brother. Dr. Taylor comes in and he sees what's going on and very discreetly and carefully and lovingly, he takes him aside, the young man, and he explains to him that this is not the way We do pastoral counseling. It's not that what the young man said was theologically inaccurate, but it was pastorally insensitive. Remember Job's response to his so called comforters? Much of what they said is good theology. Much of it, not all of it, but much of it, is acceptable. And at one point Job says, What you know, I also know. You're not telling me anything new. But you are worthless physicians. If only you would be altogether silent. That would be wisdom. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Perhaps, peradventure, says, Slow down. Drive carefully on this road. There are sharp curves ahead. You are entering the mystery zone. And mystery does not mean that God is unintelligible. It means that we are infinitesimal before the measure of His awesome grandeur and greatness. It's not that there's not enough light for us to see by. It's that there's such a depth of light that we can never take in all that it reveals. Perhaps, Alexander McLaren put it like this, a humble perhaps often grows into a verily, verily, while a hasty, overconfident, verily, verily, often dwindles to a hesitant perhaps. Let us not be in too great a hurry to make sure that we have the key to the cabinet where God keeps his purposes. But let us content ourselves with perhaps. Christian faith and Christian ministry is lived on the thin line between verily, verily, and peradventure. Son of man, can these bones live? The voice of God asked the prophet Ezekiel as he stood in the valley of destruction and death. What did Ezekiel respond? He didn't say no. For that would have been the answer of unbelief. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He didn't say no. But neither did he say yes. At least not easily and flippantly and casually. What did he say? He said, O Lord, thou knowest. Thou knowest. Peradventure. Perhaps. Can these bones live Perhaps, if God shows up, if His Spirit invigorates the dead, drying, desiccated bones, perhaps they can live, but no other way. And this is a lesson we all have to learn who minister in Jesus' name, because there are some things we can do. We can preach the sermon. We can take the the supper to the home. We can put our arms around somebody's shoulder and squeeze their hand and say that we love them. And when the funeral is over, we can turn out the lights. But only God can raise the dead. Thin line of faith that we walk between an arrogant presumption on the one hand and an even more glaringly arrogant disbelief on the other. It's a thin line. It's a small wire. But it's strong enough to withstand every windy storm and tempest that blows. Strong enough to carry us through every chasm, every valley. For underneath that thin line are the everlasting arms of one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Alpha and Omega, He. The God who has already been to tomorrow and who has come back to tell us, be not afraid. It is in this confidence and this confidence alone that we can say in the the beautiful words of that classic document of the Reformation, the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only hope and comfort in death? Answer, that I belong body and soul to my precious Savior, who at the cost of His own blood has paid for my sins and so upholds and preserves me by His care and grace that not a hair can fall from my head without His knowing it. He is our only comfort in life and in death. What happened to Inesimus? Well, we don't know for sure. We meet him again once in the New Testament, Colossians 4.9. Paul refers to him there as our faithful and dear brother. But fast forward 40 or 50 years into the future, to the early 2nd century. Ignatius of Antioch, one of the great martyrs of the early church, is on his way to Rome where he will give his life for the cause of Christ. And he writes a series of letters to the churches in Asia Minor, one of them to the church at Ephesus in which he refers to their bishop as a great and faithful leader of courage and steadfastness. What is his name? His name is Onesimus. Is it the same Onesimus once who was a slave in the household of Philemon at Colossae? Did Paul's counsel long ago to Philemon that he should receive him as myself lead eventually to his emancipation from slavery? Did this faithful and dear brother, as Paul called him, rise to become a leader of the Christian community at Ephesus, as we know other former slaves did in other churches in the New Testament in early apostolic time. Was he the one, as someone else has suggested, who in the early second century gathered together the writings, the letters of Paul into a discreet corpus and began to circulate them among the churches? Is this how the little letter of Philemon, this one single page, this single sheet of papyrus, found its way into the canon of the New Testament? Peradventure. Perhaps. For God does move in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footprints in the sea and rides upon the storm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. But God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. Let us pray. O oh God, help us to listen and be alert for the holy hunch. And help us not to neglect the time of the holy hush. That we will see your presence manifested in all of our lives day by day. We might come to know you and serve you as our only comfort in life and death for all time and eternity. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.
1: Thank you for listening to the Beeson Podcast. We are so grateful for your generous support and encouragement for our podcast ministry, which goes out to listeners all across this world. We would love to hear from you, and we hope that you will write us at BDS, which stands for Beeson Divinity School, info, I-N-F-O, B-D-S, info at Samford, S-A-M-F-O-R-D dot E-D-U.